Welcome to Sierra Week Conversations, a new video and podcast series bringing you insights with impact into energy, economics, and a changing world in the COVID-19 era. I'm your host, Dan Jurgen. Today, we're going to be discussing biofuels. Uh, and with me today are Shahali Sahai of Poet, one of the largest ethanol producers in the United States and in the world for that matter. Fernanda Delgado of FGV Energia in Rio de Janeiro. Fernanda teaches at FFG Energia and follows the policy and biofuels market in Brazil. And my colleague, Christoph Berg, who is the head of FO Licht, an IHS company based in Germany. And today we'll start with a, a conversation about the impact of COVID on the near-term markets. And then where we want to take this eventually is it's sort of the longer-term perspective uh, and the implications not only of where COVID is going, but the other big forces that we've seen emerging in biofuels, such as you know technology, carbon intensity, and policy issues. I'd like to start out with Shahalish because uh, uh, in, from the U.S. perspective uh, is uh, what have we seen uh, so far from uh, the impact of COVID on the near-term market and, and the industry? Thanks so much uh, for the question, and thanks uh, for the invitation to join you here today. So as far as short-term uh, impacts of COVID-19, uh, obviously uh, the initial shock to the fuel sector and as a result, the uh, ethanol space were significant. Driving was down, I think, 50%. Uh, from typical levels at its lowest. And in April, we saw really historically high ethanol inventories. The good news is that we've already seen a return closer to normal behavior. So uh, some analysts have driving back at about 90% of typical levels at this point. And ethanol inventories currently are actually below um, historical averages for this time of year. Uh, so I think what happened is that uh, some lower margin production went offline in the last few months, uh, which then led, that, led to a drawdown in inventories. And so now, you know, we're at an interesting point. Uh, some models have positive margins for the ethanol industry. Uh, and so you're seeing things pick up a little bit. And it'll be interesting to see where production goes in the, in the next couple of months. So, again, I'd say that the impacts were obviously a decline in production, plants coming offline, significant shots to demand. But we are seeing a significant recovery at this point. Fernanda, uh, the ethanol industry in Brazil has been hit pretty hard by this. And it's still experiencing uh, uh, um Probably uh, the last I saw was that Brazil may not yet be at the peak of where uh, the virus is. Uh, is uh, how is it? How are things faring uh, in for the industry in Brazil? Hi, Kevin. Thank you very much for the invitation to be here at Survey Conversations. Mm. The consumption of gasoline in Brazil was hit very hard for the isolation, the social isolation that we have been. Uh, experience since the beginning of the pandemic here. The ethanol uh, industry had the drop about 35% of the consumption since January until uh, the end of April, which is huge, uh, meaning in an industry which has a lot of governmental incentive in Brazil yet. So we don't know when they are going to uh, uh, come up again 
we are expecting the levels of consumption to come back maybe in August, maybe middle or in the end of August to come again. It's nice to remember that in Brazil, every, every liter of gasoline has 27.5% of ethanol on every liter of gasoline and biodiesel has, every diesel has uh, 12% of uh, biodiesel. So the industry of biofuels in Brazil is something very heavy and very important, important for our economy and has a very uh, a huge social economic impact for us. So we were hit and very, uh, very hard, as you said. Fernanda, I want to come back to the social economic point uh, in, in just a moment, because I, um, I think uh, when you raise that point, it's probably different than uh, a lot of the industry in the U.S. and in Europe. So in, in the meantime, uh, Christoph, uh, on the European side, we have Fernanda here and, uh, and, uh, and Shailish were talking about ethanol, which, of course, are the big biofuels in, in North America and South America. But in, in Europe, it's a little different. Uh, biodiesel is the big issue. And uh, all right, what kind of impacts are you seeing on uh, uh, biodiesel production and even in industry impacts and market impacts uh, as a result of COVID? Well, the result of COVID was pretty similar to what has, what has been said so far. We've seen a cut uh, demand, uh, definitely, and also a cut in supply. Um, however, the cut in demand was certainly not as uh, serious as in the case of uh, the United States as far as ethanol is concerned or in the case of um, ethanol in, in, in Brazil. So from that point of view, we are seeing uh, lower demand by about 10% uh, in the first uh, couple of um, uh, weeks and months of uh, the various uh, lockdowns. And of course, we have to differentiate between the northern uh, member states of the European Union, where the uh, lockdowns were less severe than in countries on the southern periphery, such as uh, Italy um, or Spain. What was uh, quite surprising is uh, that prices held up fairly well. For example, the blending ratios in many countries during the uh, peak of COVID were actually a little bit higher than last year. So obviously, um, there was a chance, and this chance was uh, taken that um, the market share of biofuels, and that not only applies to biodiesel, but also to ethanol, was extended during the COVID-19 period. Uh, whether or not this will hold, uh, we'll have to see. But of course, the biofuels industry in Europe has a very, very strong incentive uh, to have as much or as high a market share in 2020 uh, as possible. And that's because uh, 2020 is the base year which forms then the upper limit of uh, biofuels, first-generation biofuels for the years up to 2030. So they have to do everything in their power to really maximize biofuels content uh, during this uh, very critical year. And, and Christoph, when you measure on the base, it's a percent blend, a volume percent, rather than an absolute volume. Uh, that's the critical part of the base. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct, Kevin. So I want to just shift gears a little bit here. We have heard um, uh, there have been rumblings out there that maybe uh, we should uh, uh, see some policy changes or some uh, groups want to change policy as it relates to biofuels because of COVID. 
And Fernanda, you raised this point uh, uh, about the socioeconomic. Now, in Brazil, we know you're um, uh, rolling out Renovo Bio. So I was wondering if you could share a little bit about what's going on with Renovo Bio and what's driving the, uh, the policy and the demands uh, on, the, on agriculture and uh, biofuels. The Renova Bio program uh, was installed uh, in 2019. It's a program, it's a cap and trade program that was designed by Brazilian government in order to incentive the consumption of biofuels in Brazil. Uh, it's a cap and trade uh, uh, program for uh, carbon to reduce carbon emissions, but the main point of the program is to incentive the consumption of ethanol and, and especially ethanol, and it it makes a, a, a credit a carbon credit uh, uh, market. So the the fuel the fossil fuel distributor has to buy uh, carbon credits on the market. So they have some mat, uh, some goals obliged goals uh, uh, imposed by the, the Brazilian government. And they have to buy those credits in order to offset their their emission. The point of this market, the, the installation of this market, is um, to incentive the ethanol industry is to make the consumer uh, in order to to make the ethanol industry to gain more scale, to gain more muscles, and to drop the price of ethanol even more. And doing that, the, the, the final consumer would, uh, would choose for using more ethanol instead of using gasoline. So that's why I said the program has a more social economic impact because it will um, affect in the beginning of the chain and in the end of the chain. It will uh, affect the ethanol producer because he, they are going to receive the money from this market, this carbon market, in order to uh, uh, produce more and to gain more scale, to gain more muscle, and, and to depend less from the from the incentives from the government and the final consumer uh, that will that will have a cheaper a cheaper fuel and then will choose to use more ethanol instead of the fossil fuel. The problem is the COVID the COVID nineteen hit very hard. Uh, the ethanol, uh, the ethanol market, and the and the gasoline market, as you say. So that's why the distributor didn't sell as much gasoline as they 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 were supposed to sell in 2000 uh, in the beginning of 2020. So the goals of the the program are being revised by uh, the Minister of Mines and Energy. Thank you, uh, and Shailish. Where would we be in the U.S. without political and policy intrigue and biofuels, let alone everything else? Uh, through this whole, uh, we've seen a number of things starting to happen. And you and I talked about this. We have uh, maybe LCFS programs like California and Oregon are spreading maybe to other states in the U.S. There was just a, a bill introduced in Congress for a uh, maybe a national LCFS standard. We don't know where that's going to go. But um, 
we have the there's an impression, unlike Brazil, uh, where they may, they're discussing flexibility in the policy. Have you seen anything in the U.S. or any your thoughts on kind of where this pot where we're going from a policy perspective? Has COVID affected it? Uh, or are we just kind of going along as if uh, COVID is not relevant to biofuels policy or is it something in between? Look, I mean, COVID-19 in the short term is certainly relevant to biofuels policy. I think in the short run, the focus, uh, you know, of the national and state governments to get the economy up and running. But, you know, carbon policy by its nature is long-term policy. So I don't think the long-run march towards more carbon-limiting policies has really been slowed down all that much. Um, so, And you'll see that manif- manifest at both the state and federal level. Um, in the states, you know, California obviously has a well-developed program. Oregon is considering tightening down on its version of the LCFS, the Clean Fuels Program there. Washington State has been tying, you know, toying with an LCFS program. Uh, we'll see if they move forward with one. Uh, and then in the Northeast, you've had uh, a Reggie-like effort by the Eastern states to explore uh, not an LCFS, but a, a cap-and-trade type program uh, for liquid fuels that would uh, limit the amount of petroleum that could be used. Um, so at the state level, you're seeing a lot of action uh, for the long term. And as you pointed out, at the federal level, um, uh, there has also been some discussion of a federal LCFS program. There's been some legislation. The House Select Committee on Climate Change had a report a couple of weeks ago where they seem to favor moving forward with an LCFS type program. So there's a lot of action at the state level. There's a lot of action at the federal level. Uh, and I suspect that um, in the next you know, months to year, you'll see some of these programs uh, mature a little bit. Uh, and fill some of the vacuum that has been created really by the instability of the RFS. Does it matter who is elected president when it comes to biofuels? Well, look, I think it's clear that um, both parties have significant interests in biofuels. Uh, You know, there are clear carbon benefits, and then there are benefits to huge sectors of the economy as well. You know, more biofuels can really be used to drive uh, domestic industrial development, to really help the ag sector, uh, and, and not do so at the expense of the environment. Well-designed biofuels policy, uh, in addition to the, to, you know, the, the, the carbon benefits, uh, can also encourage, for example, better farming practices uh, so that we can end up uh, with kind of superior environmental performance afterwards. Uh, so I'd say both parties have incentives uh, to, you know, amplify the level of biofuels uh, in the economy. I want to come back to uh, the farming practices point here in a little bit. But if we go over to Kristoff, um, we have Red 2 coming up uh, into implementation. Do you see anything going on in the, on the policy front in Europe that would be signaling we should be looking for a policy change as a result of what's happened with, uh, to the industry with COVID? Uh, not, not, nothing specific. However, we just have to be aware that climate change was really on the top of the political agenda of each and every member state and, of course, in Brussels um, as well. 
And if anything, um, the COVID-19 crisis is probably going to accelerate um, that will and um, you know the drive to um, really promote uh, biofuels uh, or renewable fuels um, at a grander scale. Uh, whether or not this will really um, give a boost to first-generation biofuels, that remains to be seen. The resistance in the European Union uh, NGOs, uh, interested parties is still very big, and that uh, dates back uh, to the 2008-2009 food versus food debate. This is still has not this still has not gone away, despite uh, many years of uh, agricultural surpluses and relatively stable food prices. Nevertheless, so overall, we just have to be aware that if there is a sector which is most obviously going to benefit from these revitalization packages, which are currently being hammered out in Brussels and in other capitals throughout Europe, it's going to be advanced biofuels because they promise, uh, you know, to turn uh, straw into gold, to turn uh, waste products into uh, valuable super low carbon fuels. And this is something which is, uh, uh, which is a very, very big asset uh, on the political, political stage. And therefore they might, uh, gain some some extra support um, in these uh, current political discussions. Thank you, Christoph. So you raised a good point about advanced biofuels, and and you mentioned cellulosic. Uh, I'd like to go back uh, to uh, Shailish here for uh, uh, a, a question uh, that he also uh, uh, gave us a little bit of a look at. Um, Shailish, we're seeing a lot of changes on the agricultural side, as well as uh, agriculture adopting toward the idea of decarbonization and the biofuels industry adopting for, to decarbonization. When you compare what we see going on there to advanced biofuels and what our policy here in the United States and in California require for advanced biofuels, what are you guys seeing out there now as uh, the uh, the progress and the the potential on on those two tracks. Sure. Well, I think the distinction between advanced uh, and non advanced biofuels is a little bit arbitrary, and I'll I'll tell you why. Currently, many of the most prominent and kind of reliable estimates of cornstarch ethanol greenhouse gas reductions put us at about 40 to 50% reduction compared to gasoline. Uh, and there's a lot of low-hanging fruit that's still out there that can put us uh, at even more significant greenhouse gas reductions. Um, one area that you mentioned was agriculture. So there's a lot of farming practices that can be implemented that we think could reduce uh, CI scores by another 10 to 20 points uh, without that much effort if farmers were given uh, the right incentives. Uh, which means that there has to be value in the chain that can be passed down to farmers uh, so that we can pay more for low carbon corn, frankly. And then in addition, uh, you know, we could uh, see some process improvements. Uh, and also we think the indirect land use change data suggests that actual indirect land use change impacts are much lower uh, than the initial analyses suggested to the extent they exist at all. Um, so when you add all that up, uh, you know, with even just minor improvements uh, in the way farming occurs in the process and then essentially corrections and updates to indirect land use change, there's an easy bypass to greater than 50% reductions in greenhouse gases from corn starch ethanol. 
Now, if you layer on top of that some relatively readily available technology, you can get cornstarch ethanol down to 60, 70, uh, maybe 80% reductions in greenhouse gases compared to baseline gasoline. One example uh, that folks are actively exploring and implementing right now is carbon capture and sequestration. So that's where you take the process carbon dioxide, obviously not the tailpipe, and uh, sequester it somewhere. That can result in another 20 to 30 points of CI improvements. And then all of a sudden, the distinction, as I mentioned earlier, between advanced and not advanced disappears. If you're talking about cornstarch ethanol with a 60, 70, 80% reduction below baseline, that's better than a lot of uh, technologies that people would characterize as advanced. Uh, nonetheless, I think the march towards uh, advanced biofuels, as they're currently called today, will proceed as long as we have a more stable incentive program put into place in the future. You know, we have invested very heavily in cellulosic biofuels, but one of the big sources of value uh, that we relied on in our investments has been gutted, which is the RFS. So cellulosic RINs have gone down uh, about two bucks per gallon in value, which means, I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot of money, as everyone knows in the fuel sector, uh, which has made it really hard for us to sustain commercial scale cellulosic development. Now, we're still committed to the technology at the R&D level, uh, but really, if you're going to ask industry to spend, you know, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars in new technology, we need a stable program where the value is going to be there uh, in the long run. And so if, you know, some of these state programs or a federal program can put that value there for the long run, I think you'll see improvements and efficiencies in uh, advanced biofuels as well. So Shaley Shay, I was trying to do some math in my head here as you were going through the possible reductions, and uh, I may have done a miscalculation. If I added everything up to what you said, you, I came up with something that was less than zero for corn ethanol if you add carbon sequestration on top of that. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, that's feasible. So if you take into account carbon sequestration, I think that's right. So this is this is sequestration is um, the process whereby you change farming practices such that the soil uh, is actually taking up carbon from the atmosphere. And we there's been a lot of research done on this. This has been hot uh, lately on a normal, uh, on a number of fronts. And again, I think if farmers have the incentives to engage in those practices, I think they'll do it. And you can see these vast swaths of agricultural land in the United States and elsewhere essentially turning into carbon sinks where the soil is sucking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. What do you see as the potential in, in Brazil to adopt uh, these kinds of things? And are there efforts going on uh, on the part of producers, both in the agricultural sector and in the processing manufacturing sector to reduce their uh, carbon intensity? Yes, this, uh, the second generation ethanol in Brazil, we have, as, as we were speaking before, this is still not an not a issue for us uh, right now, but we have two plants working on that. Our production is not commercial. The second generation ethanol is, is still very expensive for us uh, here. And, but we are working on that. The plans are that we are going to have uh, the inception of this 
second generation, about 2028, 2030, they are going to come up commercial. They're going to gain scale and to be commercial and to be added on our production. Our carbon intensity uh, perspective is the, the, the objectives of the, the government is to increase the mix of the use of biofuels on the, on the, on the fossil fuel. So the intention is to increase the, the ethanol mixture and, and the intention is to increase the biofuel, uh, the biodiesel mixture until something around uh, the B20 is 20% of uh, biodiesel on the diesel or until the, the, the engines can, can handle the bio, biofuel on the, on the biodiesel. Also, we have the green diesel uh, thing here in Brazil that's not commercial, but we have some initiatives. And the HVO, uh, which is the uh, hydro treatment of uh, vegetable oil. So we have a lot of studies here, especially the use of um, any kinds of fats, like uh, any, any residue uh, to use to make biodiesel. So all the, the studies are being done here to use and, and to, uh, especially the residue. And here in Brazil, we are very interested, is, as Sailor uh, said, our uh, low-hanging fruit is the biogas from biomethane. It's a way to have energy and cheap energy uh, for us. As, as I said, everything is related to something social economic in Brazil in order to give jobs, especially in the interior of uh, Brazil. So these are some perspectives, but as we have a very clean energy matrix and this is, is the, the, the carbon intensity thing is something that is our is in our agenda, but it's not a special issue for us uh, right now. Well, Christoph, we've heard about uh some advances in conventional ethanol or biofuels that could reduce the carbon intensity. And uh, Shailish mentioned that it's becoming the line between what's defined as advanced and what's defined as conventional is being blurred, not only in, uh, in the United States, but when you look at some of the CIs that are coming out of Brazil, they're also very competitive on that basis. Red 2 has some pretty prescriptive um, uh, classifications uh, for uh, biofuels, whether it's uh, a food-based uh, or not food-based. Do you see any uh, anything that, uh, as if we really do see these reductions in CI uh, coming from conventional fuels, do you expect that there would be any change in uh, the uh, the European Union's view or attitude toward conventional biofuels? That's a very good question. And I fully agree with Shalish, what he said. Uh, there's uh, clearly, you know, lots of potential first-generation biofuels. And uh, actually, the EU is a very good example of that. Uh, we started out in 2011, 2012, with about 50% CO2 reductions with the help of ethanol. And we are now on an EU-wide average of over 70%. And that's mainly because there is an incentive to reduce the carbon intensity of fuels under the so-called fuel quality directive, which is not applied in each and every member state to the same extent, 
But nevertheless, it's a very, very powerful driver to really go for higher CI um, or for lower CIs and higher CO2 reductions. So from that point of view, we have not really reached the end with regards to CO2 reductions um, in first generation biofuels. Uh, and there's lots of um, there are lots of um, there's there's lots of opportunity uh, to pursue. Uh, whether or not this will then result in a rethink at the um, political level about uh, first generation biofuels remains to be seen. We do have uh, the Red Two um, review coming up next year, and this will be the first test. Uh, whether or not uh, the politicians in, in Brussels will have a um, new view on uh, first-generation biofuels and that blurred line between advanced biofuels and um, the uh, first-generation biofuels. Uh, from my point of view, there are certainly a number of very good arguments that speak in favor of a redefinition of um, this uh, distinction between the two. The first of all, or the, the most important aspect is in this uh, respect, um, the availability. Um, at the moment, we do have a good way availability of first-generation biofuels. We do have tried and tested technologies. We have feedstock uh, chains, value chains, which are developed and which really have not um, reached their potential yet. And at the same time, uh, advanced biofuels are still very much in the in a very you know embryonic state. Of course, we have some plants uh, which are currently being dis uh, constructed, and uh, the availability of advanced biofuels will improve. However, we, there's still a very long way to go. And the years to 2030, that's not a very long period. So we really have to work very, very fast in order to get our um, CO2 emissions from the transportation sector down. And uh, as a um, very good um, bridging technology, uh, you know, first generation biofuels are really a very, very good bet. Well, one last question for our panelists today. As uh, as we've looked out longer term, there are a couple of issues that are kind of emerging as uh, important uh, to um, to the, the liquid fuels business. Now, everyone here is involved uh, primarily in biofuels, but one of the things that we're seeing is um, the refining and marketing industry in a lot of places is taking a very strong interest in uh, in biofuels across the uh, across the various fuels, and I think if you, no matter which hat you wear, if you're a refiner of biofuels, you can look at electric vehicles as a common strategic threat uh, to uh, the liquid fuels business. So I'd like to just go back to uh, to Christoph and then to Shailish and, and Fernanda about. Um, are, do you, what do you see the interoperability of the biofuels industry and the traditional refining industry? We're starting to see signals that they're kind of merging. So, Christoph, uh, we just had the announcement from ENI uh, last week. They've converted two refineries to renewable diesel plants, and they said they might want to be out of the refining business by 2030. Um, in this area, what are your thoughts on uh, on this relationship between traditional hydrocarbon fuels and liquid biofuels? 
Uh, I think the, the case of Europe is special because of the predominance of uh, diesel on the transportation fuel market. And therefore, for Europe, at least for Europe, uh, I think that this uh, growing integration between agricultural feedstock streams and the traditional refining industry is really going to gain in importance. And the renewable diesel sector is more or less, um, you know, the symptom or the prime representative of this uh, development. And so uh, at the moment, um, there are hardly any European um, fuel companies or oil companies left that have not in, uh, you know, some engagement in the renewable diesel sector. And uh, that is uh, going to intensify. Whether or not uh, each and every European oil company will go the same way as uh, ENI, that remains to be seen. I, I, I would doubt that. But nevertheless, ENI is uh, is a fairly big player in the market, and what they have in their strategy book is certainly uh, going uh, to be um, very well intensively studied by others and market peers. And therefore, I think uh, in Europe, at least uh, in the biodiesel sector, you will see a growing participation of renewable diesel. Um, in the ethanol sector, that might be a little bit different, but I guess my colleagues from the United States and Brazil will have uh, to say something about this because here this integration has already been advanced and uh, therefore is uh, much more prevalent than in the European Union. Well, Shailish, uh, that's a great segue to uh, go to you next. Uh, we have in the U.S., we have biofuels, I call them biofuels majors uh, in ethanol and in uh, uh, on the biodiesel, renewable diesel side. We have a very heavy presence of refining and marketing ownership in the biofuels industry. Uh, some of the largest ethanol companies are owned by refiners like um, Valero. In your, uh, in your view, how do you see this playing out uh, in, uh, in the U.S. market? Well, look, we see ourselves, um, and the numbers support this, as a low-carbon fuel that's readily available to promote the goal of decarbonization throughout the United States. Um, so, you know, I think you will see growth in the uh, electric sector, which is, you know, certainly uh, another low carbon technology. Uh, but I think the solutions from our end uh, come from three places. One is higher biofuel blend levels. Um, two is further improvements in so-called conventional biofuel CI and then three is the promulgation of advanced biofuels. So I think the first point is really what we're focusing on now. Um, and the, you know, the, the low hanging fruit there again is, uh, moving in, in blend levels would be moving from E10 to E15. The majority of states allow that. Uh, and then E85 on the ethanol side, um, has been growing in California at an incredible rate. I think 40% year over year. So I think E85, uh, granted that uh, vehicles continue to be designed to use it, uh, which, which we're hopeful the EPA will give those incentives, but E85 will also be there to promote higher balloon levels. So we think that there are a number of readily available options uh, to help liquid fuels uh, be a greener fuel and, and contribute to decarbonization. The other thing we hope to see, I think, in the coming years is um, engines optimized to use higher ethanol blends. Um, so uh, ethanol is an octane enhancer uh, in addition to its other properties. And it turns out that you can really maximize fuel efficiency uh, if you up ethanol levels, I think, to around an E30. 
um, and then design the engine to run on those very high octane levels. Uh, so, so that would be another way to, for us to work to improve CI um, in the liquid fuel space by, by improving fuel efficiency. So there's a number of options there, um, again, to work um, to, on the improvement of liquid fuel CI as part of the decarbonization solution. So, Fernanda, if we have in Brazil, uh, BP and Shell are both heavily involved now in the biofuels ethanol industry. And uh, to take off on a point that Shailish just made, uh, you have a large number of vehicles that are E100 uh, uh, vehicles in Brazil. Do you see uh, any signs here of a continuation or, or a development of uh, more of the traditional oil companies taking larger stakes in uh, uh, the biofuels industry in Brazil, or does it look to you like there is a, a biofuels industry that may or may not need big financial relationships with some of the oil companies? I guess we are still one step behind because in Brazil, the refining sector is a monopoly of Petrobras still. 98% of all the refining, the, the, the fossil fuel refining is still a monopoly of Petrobras, but they are divesting for it. They are selling eight refineries right now. And, and in Brazil, the regulation is something very peculiar because uh, the, the distributor cannot be the owner of the refinery. So NBP and Shell especially is a distributor and has investments on uh, on ethanol as well as BP. So we still have to work on our regulation framework. We still have to sell those refineries and make those divestments from Petrobras. And then we are going to see how the industry are going to behave. But make all sense for the, 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 the major companies to have their interest, their interest and, and to put money on the, on the biodiesel, on the biofuel uh, sector as well as Shell as SBP uh, did. I guess the, the others didn't do that uh, due to the regulation that is still uh, complicated here and the divestments of Petrobras to see how the things are going to come out, uh, the selling of, of those uh, refineries and especially if they can be the owner of all the steps of uh, the chain. So that's why when we were talking uh, uh, before, Brazil is still in the early stages of several steps that uh, Europe and United States are ahead. So we are still implementing the first program of decarbonization. We are still implementing our market of uh, our credit carbon market. We are still in the first steps of a lot of initiatives that you gentlemen are already already uh, ahead. So everything is very new, very new, and, and we are in the beginning. Well, thank you, uh, uh, everyone, for participating in this. I am glad that we were able to uh, have this session uh, after uh, uh, not being able to get together at, at CIRA Week. Um, I think the conclusion that I came away with is that uh, in a, a liquid fuels market that seems to be um, relatively mature, 
in a lot of uh, the world that we operate in and that you operate in, there's a lot of uncertainty created by both industry transitions and changes, as well as, of course, policy. Um, and uh, I, so it sounds to me like this is a business with lots of opportunity uh, because of all of those changes that are coming. Um, so with that, I'd like to bring this to a conclusion, and I'd like to thank you all for participating in this zero-week conversation uh, presented by IHS Market, and uh, wish you well and, and stay well. Thank you very much. Thanks again for tuning in to another zero-week conversation presented by IHS Market. For the complete video series and previous episodes, visit us online at zeroweek.com. <laughs>